Welcome to Photo Mission Exposure, discussing photography, where we talk one-on-one with photographers. Come join us. Welcome to this edition of Photo Mission Exposure, the podcast for photographers. The photographer we're talking to today has had a love of photography from a very young age and knew exactly which direction he wanted to take his career when he left school. So leaving junior high, went straight to college where he studied photography in Brisbane. And upon getting his qualifications at college, he immediately started and started working in and around Brisbane in various different uh, photography studios, covering off a whole range of different type of activities. But his first love was nature. And so an opportunity came along for him to basically get a job with uh, Parks and Wildlife which started him on his career becoming a nature photographer. He now travels the world teaching photography and photographing the wildlife. He has a love of everything of the ocean and under the ocean, which contests that he actually had a dive certificate from the age of 14, so he's always destined to be an underwater photographer. He's won a number of awards, and also he was the subject of a documentary, Tales by Light. So welcome our photographer for this episode, Photographer Darren Jew. So let's hear Darren's story. Uh, well, these days I'm a, I'd say I'm an underwater photographer. I, uh, I've been in the photography business for 35 years. Yep. Um, having gone to the Queensland College of Art straight out of um, junior um, high school. So I finished grade 10 and went to... Went straight uh, at, went straight into... Into art college, yeah. So that would have made you quite young at the time of getting into the... A field of photography. For sure. I, there was one other um, student from junior, but the rest were either senior graduates or, or mature age students out of the 30 or so in the class. Yeah. So I, I like to take guests back to when they first discovered photography. Obviously, um, the reason that you went from junior, obviously you had a, a strong interest in photography from an early age. So what point did you actually discover photography for yourself? Uh, I think the... Most obvious thing for me was my dad um, in the late 60s, between like 67, 68, spent a year down at Mawson Base in Antarctica as a radio technician and he took his camera with him down there. Yep. So I was only a couple of years old, but um, as I got just a few years older than that, I started to look through his boxes of Kodachrome slides Yes. and yep. um, penguins, um, seals, icebergs, big red ships and tractors out on the ice yes um just, and just, that, just just images you just didn't see not in normal normal life no no and uh i guess that got me interested in the idea that the world was bigger than just my own backyard yep and so dad's interest in in photography is is probably what what sparked it for me and i was always interested in as many um ocean photographers are uh, interested in especially ones of my age, um, Jacques Cousteau's specials on a Saturday afternoon. Yes. Yep. Uh, and so those two things, I think, were the things that got me moving um, in in the way of photography. So when did you first pick up your first camera that you started actually creating images yourself with? Yeah, I uh, had a Kodak Instamatic uh, with a 126 cartridge yep. film when I was around 11. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was kind of quite tall for my age and I, I started working when I was in grade eight at the local supermarket, packing groceries on the shelves in the evenings and then, then packing uh, customers' groceries and taking them out to the, the car. Yep. And through that, I saved through my early high school years and, and got my first DSLR. Yes. Oh, sorry, DSLR. My first <laughs> single lens reflex camera with for a roll of film, and and also my um, uh, I did my dive course. Okay. Um, when I was fourteen. So so you got into the ocean at a very early age. Yeah. 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 But at that stage, probably not with a camera because probably um, cameras were a bit underwater. Cameras, are, I mean, always expensive. But yeah. Well, I I ended up got my first underwater camera when I started college. A second-hand uh, Nikonis yep. underwater camera. Yeah, yep. so I was about fifteen by then. So yeah, I started my college days started at, at fifteen. I was catching the 
the train from Caboolture into the city, yes, Brisbane city, yep. and then uh, a bus out to Morningside. Because probably probably at that time too, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't a field that a lot of people actually went into photography. I mean, it was yeah, that's it was a bit unusual for sure. It was, but there was jobs jobs in photography then. Yes, uh, whether it was in labs processing film running dark rooms, commercial photographers had assistants, newspapers had staff photographers, the government departments had photographers. Yep. It was all kinds of um, photography jobs. There wasn't a lot of them, but, but they were they did exist. You could yes. you could get a wage for working in photography. Yep. And I've I've had photographers on the on the show where I've had one photographer here, you know, back in that same era, he had three studios. Mm-hmm. So portrait photography and wedding photography was quite a quite a thing for sure um so yeah and the landscape's changed a little bit and i suppose it's it's difficult for younger photographers coming into it now it's, i think it's it's quite a difficult to get a foothold yeah into, I, into the I, industry i would agree with that it's uh you know when i was at college my first thought was to go and work for another photographer in some capacity to learn more about photography uh i'd learnt the, the theory at college over yep. two years and um, really, when I came out of there, I was just ready to sort of absorb a lot more. And yep. uh, those sort of opportunities don't really exist yes. now. So yeah. where where was your first days of working as a photographer? Were you what, stu- at a studio? Or? Yeah, I, I uh, actually left college and went and had a weekend away with all the students to celebrate. And uh, on the Monday, I got back to home uh, around lunchtime and my mum said, oh, there's a job in the paper for you. And I looked it up and there was a, a job processing film at a lab. And they wanted, uh, it was funny, they wanted, you had to have replied by 11 o'clock. Okay. And it was like one o'clock now. And, and I said, oh, I've missed it. And mum said, oh, give them a call anyway. So I called them and they said, no, the time's passed. And I said, oh, but I've got, I'm 15 and I've got a qualification from College of Art. And they went, oh. Okay, young and yeah. educated. Yep. And uh, long story short, I went in for an interview that afternoon and uh, started the next day. So I worked there for a few months processing. It was a, a wedding portrait lab, so yep. processing film, uh, 120 film, mostly colour neg and making prints for a lot of country studios. So the busy days were the the bus freight would come in on Monday and Tuesday with rolls and rolls of film oh, and, yep. and we'd process them all out and get them out uh, out the door back on the bus freight out to the uh, all across Queensland. So. And did that, through that process, did that obviously further you know, whet your appetite for photography, seeing those images? Oh, for sure. I, I, I always wanted to work in, in nature photography somehow but understood that, you know, there would be a pathway to get there thing that I got most out of working in the lab was just watching pictures come off the printer and seeing how not to take a picture really where all the mis- the mistakes were the things that I was learning the most from what other photographers were yes were doing I ended up only staying there for a few months and I got a, a sec- uh, my second job was with a an archaeologist and I ran his darkroom for him for about 12 months okay just processing film, black and white film, and making black and white prints of Aboriginal art sites all around Australia. So, okay, that was a so was, that was amazing. Were they documentary? Was that were they doing the doc? Yeah, scientific oh. um, record basically. Yes. Yeah. Um, he this guy had uh, contracts with uh, various government bodies around the the country to record sites. So I yeah, I was fascinated by some of the things I was seeing, and um, he he pretty much. You know, he had covered the whole country and uh, was quite secretive about where the where the sites were. Uh, but that collection is is a really valuable thing. Um, oh, look, it is, and and look, and that's probably not even something that people would be aware of so much. That even back then, that 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 stuff was being captured to be preserved for, you know, for for the archives, basically. For sure, and it's you know that I think. Photography has often been that it's been seen as, you know, the, the, the documentary thing. It's the thing we all look back on to yes. see what life was like back then. So let's just hope that the way photography's gone now with its more, I guess, its broader reach and its less less importance put on individual pictures, let's hope it's still there's a, there's a collection people can look back on and 
Yeah, and I, I do have I do have a theory about moving forward in the next thirty years that someone who's in their twenties now in thirty years time is that they're probably not going to have very much of a photographic record of their life, unlike probably. You probably grew up. I grew up in a in a household where my father was a photographer. We had a dark room under the house, so I got age of seven. I was I was fascinated by the dark room. Yeah, and right. and he showed me some. The thing that hooked me was he showed me some trick photography and you know, forced perspectives and different things, yeah. and I just fell in love with this thing. I thought this is so cool. Yeah, but we had lots and lots of photo albums, and again, he was an avid slide shooter, so he used to shoot a lot of transparencies and. Tra- he used to travel as well, so I used to love looking at these. We used to have these epic slide nights. Mm. And and I shot, I suppose, in my teens, about your age, I shot lots of transparencies. Just I just love that, that, that medium. Yep. But So I've got a very good archive. Yes. And probably you've got a good archive of stuff like that. But moving forward, I just don't know that people, once they've captured the stuff on their phone... They're going to that trouble of putting it somewhere else safe. Yeah, I think um, pictures are, are viewed very differently now. The, re- the reason for taking them is is very different, and it's it's like uh, it's very immediate now, and it's not for posterity. Yes, I'm taking a picture of it's this about for proving, posterity. It's yeah. about proving a point. This is where I had lunch. Yeah, this is where I was looking at the ocean. Yeah, um, that type of thing. It's just that. That moment in time, yeah. Not saying that we're capturing this milestone for future, yeah. References, which yeah. is kind of sad because I mean, I'm I'm from the old school photography thought of, um, and I still like printing pictures. Yes, you know, still like, and I think that's a, always a challenge. I think now for people, um, especially the younger generation, not having prints for sure. Yeah, it's uh, you know, it's they're so ephemeral. We see so many pictures. We see people scrolling through Instagram feeds um, and seeing thousands and thousands and thousands of pictures, and it's just an overload. And and then you know, there's a lot of very good pictures. It's it's relatively simple to get a pretty good picture now. Yes. Um, and so that I guess just gives us a I guess the incentive to try and make something even better. Something. Not be, not seen before. Well, to, to punch for that noise floor of all that, those, like you said, some, there is some great imagery out there, but trying to get a photograph that's actually head and shoulders above that is the, is so much harder. Yeah, for today. sure, for sure. Yeah, yeah, not impossible. I'd like to probably. I mean, you've just recently been involved with something as well, which was photo eight. That's right. Yeah, and, Damien, Irina, and myself. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and look, I've I was you know, got involved and put a couple of prints in, and I. I, I thing that I suppose I loved about that, the fact that, that it was actually a print exhibition and I love the print swap concept. Yeah. Because, you know, it's kind of like some of those people I believe probably had pictures printed who never had them printed before. For sure, yeah. Uh, the print swap idea, I think, in an informal sense has, has been around for a long time amongst, uh, I guess I was first introduced to it through my involvement with the AIPP and other professional photographers so you'd you'd be at an at an event and there'd be a print that you liked and you'd you know get strike up a conversation with the photographer and and just do a do a swap for one of your own and we did an exhibition i I ran helped run a a photography center a few years ago photo frenzy photography center over at um cooperoo and we got an exhibition going which was with my graduating year from college and we we did the print swap col- uh, concept there. So yep. everybody sent in their photo. We we printed it up, stuck it on the wall. Everybody came to the night and took away somebody else's print. So I think that the idea that um, we could use, I think that was a, the fundamental idea with PhotoAid was, you know, it was at a time where the first thing on everybody's minds was raising money yes. for the fire disasters, but. We wanted it to be more than that, and and the idea that we could introduce people to printing, to exhibitions, to other photographers. Um, you know, we had sixty odd photographers involved in the print swap. So there's a, you know, all of a sudden there's over thirty pairs of photographers who are, are now connected through through a photo. It's and that and that's right. I think the other thing too was, but it was such a good diversity of photographers. They all come from different backgrounds. Yes. Um, so the the prints that were on off, you know, on show, basically covered a whole wide, you know, 
range of top topics. And there were some, you know, really top-notch photographers in there who, who offered up their work um, to to be part of this event. That it meant there was it was a bit of a lottery, but there was a chance you could walk away from that with a, a quite a notable piece of work, work as well, which is another incentive to. And I, I think as another part of that, which was because there was a number of prints that were donated for auction, and of course some of them were quite, you know, iconic. Australian pieces of photography history. Yes, is that once you print something, it it has the potential then to be something and live a longer life. Like it, you know. For sure, um, I we we got a little rubber stamp um, and stamped the back of all of the print swap images with the uh, little photo aid symbol and the date. And I was looking at those, thinking how I wonder if any of those in. 30 or 40 years' time, maybe popping up at some auction somewhere to raise money. Yes. Um, because it was, you know, um, a well-known photographer's well, contribution. Photog- well, that, ph- lot- that photographer may have gone on from that point to become quite quite well-known and quite respected. And, For and, sure. And in and, and, and Prince be worth something. I don't know. There's, uh, there's something about, like I said, about capturing that stuff. There was a exhibition that was done by um, the Museum of Brisbane, the Glass Plate. I don't know if you ever no, saw that. Didn't see it, no. There was a guy, I think, I want to say maybe maybe in the 40s and 50s, had run around Brisbane with a glass plate camera taking these incredible pictures. He'd taken um, a leaven picture, which could be stitched as a pano, from mm-hmm. the windmill at Spring Hill. Oh, wow. Very iconic. They were actually found under a house in a crate. Someone had come across them thinking it was a crate of glass yeah. until someone pulled one out and go... There's actually some type of image on here. Wow. <laughs> and they were donated, obviously, but, but when they got them out and looked at them and cleaned them up, incredible that, that they've survived being glass plate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's one thing. Mm. They didn't probably weren't installed on the most ideal conditions, so the fact that they didn't some, – some of them were had deteriorated. Mm-hmm. Um, but amazing that, like I said, so, yeah, so who knows in 30, 40 years there could be – one of those prints could pop up somewhere. For sure. Um, I really loved, uh, we had a couple of vintage um, gelatin silver prints uh, in that auction and just just picking them up and, you know, the signatures on them from, from back in the 90s. Um, uh, one of the prints was a vintage print that um, had never been signed. So it was an old print with a new signature. Yep. And... Those little things just t- give give the photographs that we had on auction just that whole level beyond just their pictorial value or their intrinsic artistic value. I think there was one print there where, the, where um, when they've signed it, the pen hasn't quite worked, so they've had to do yeah. a bit of a test. On test it. of the pen, and that <laughs> to me that was one of the highlights of that that piece. Was, well, it makes it unique. Yeah, it's it's like it's like the it's like the bank note that's got the you know got the error in it. Yeah, it becomes unique, and it's um, you know that makes it something a little bit different and special. Which for photography, you know, that photography has always prided itself on its repeatability and the fact that you could reproduce prints and you could make copies of things. That, um, but in a way, that reproducibility has reduced its, I guess, its meaning in the art world because it can be. Because it's going to be, it's like, it is McDon- no, it's like McDonald's. That's right. It's hamburger. no longer unique. So the way that, you know, the provenance can be attached to things, you know, print that was actually exhibited in a particular exhibition that had, had some weight, that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. And that, that's never really going to happen with a digital file. No, no, it's, it's, <laughs> it's totally different. Yeah. So let's take you back to where you've, um, you've done, you've come out of college, you've done a couple of stints now working in a couple of, places what was your next transition what was your next job move from there so i went from working for the archaeologist to working as a commercial photographer's assistant in fortitude valley so in a studio that was in a a church in warren street in the valley yep Um, upstairs was the studio and downstairs was um, two dark rooms and two offices one for each each photographer and so I started work there as a just a, on a um, temporary uh, 
replacement for somebody who was on holidays and with one photographer and then I I picked up an assisting job with with the other photographer so I was there for a couple of years yep. and that was uh, amazing it was you know everything from sweeping the floor to making the coffee to processing film uh, making black and white prints setting up the lights yep. um preparing location shoots getting all the gear together and everything yeah yeah did you also get an understanding of the, the business of photography or what what it actually involved to actually run a photography business for sure and the, my my boss at that time um david mccarthy he was a consummate businessman um his father had been uh very um prominent in professional photography circles uh and David had followed in his footsteps and ran a very, very tight business. And he, he was really good businessman. Um, all the job cards were all, had all the costings and everything attached to them. And we knew exactly where we were at every every moment. So, And that, um, that's a very important part of, of anyone who's trying to run a photography business today because to really understand the business side of photography, you can be the best photographer in the world doesn't mean you're going to be successful as a commercial photographer, unfortunately. For sure. And David um, would admit, I'm sure, that he wasn't necessarily the um, most creative um, advertising photographer in, in Brisbane at the time, but he was certainly one of the most successful. Yes. Because he knew how to deliver what the clients asked for. And that was something that, I guess that's my biggest takeaway from that job, was the client asked for this you deliver that. Yes. You give them something else if you think you can put another take on it, but yep. you don't, but you always give them exactly what they ask for. Yes. And look, that's the first fundamental rule of business. Yeah. Otherwise, you, your customers soon will, you know, basically um, leave you in droves if you're not delivering what they actually want. For sure. And, you know, we were dealing in those days with uh, briefs from um, art directors and... I remember it was just when faxes came in because uh, all the advertising photographers were now able to get um, their briefs faxed to them from interstate. Yes. So <laughs> they'd be, we'd be able to do a, a job based on a sketch. Yes. Um, and uh, that was all very exciting. So mm. that, that was that was the first, I suppose, hint of digital technology coming into into the photography industry, really. For sure, for sure. It That did, um, you know, at that time we were still couriering film to and from the labs and transparencies to the clients and then they'd come back for a print and all that kind of stuff it was a lot of physical and the um the fact that you needed to have the photograph in your hand to be able to do anything with it yes yep. was um was uh still still the case yeah scanning was only something that would done at the very high end for magazine and and um print uh, as in print production. Yep. Yeah. So where did your journey of photography take you after that? After working there, you obviously went on to do some other stuff. Yeah. Uh, I uh, heard about a job coming up with the Queensland National Parks and Wildlife Service in the photographic unit. So I applied for that because that was kind of, that's for me, that was, that was where, that was where your, was, this was your This was your pathway that you were trying to navigate yeah, down. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I applied for that job. There was about 300 applicants some very big name photographers from nature photographers from all around Australia applying. And I got down to the, the short list of 10. Yeah. Um, went for my second interview and at the second interview, they gave each of us a roll of 36 exposure, 35 mil slide film. Yes. And said, come back with the, and give us that film unprocessed. Um, and the brief is the nature of Brisbane. Yes. So we had a couple of weeks to go and shoot that. So that was a lot of pressure. One one roll of film, thirty six exposures to, um, I guess, expose yourself. Yes, yes. <laughs> as a photographer, brutal honesty. There. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that was quite nerve wracking. Um, but I think my training from David McCarthy as um, as an assistant and that idea that you do what the client asks for, it was the thing that got me that job because I. Um, I did actually go and photograph the nature of Brisbane, yeah. and I know that subsequently I've been I was able to see some of the other work that was presented, and photographers were going off to Lamington National Park or up in the mountains or up to Fraser Island to photograph beautiful landscapes, 
but they weren't. But they weren't. They weren't, weren't, on the, weren't on the brief, so <laughs> they that kind of took them out straight away. So a few quite really good photographers who would have been able to, I guess, fill the need for good photography in that position yep. um, missed out because they hadn't stuck so to the brief. There's a good there's a good um, takeaway point for people listening to this about um, if they want to get into photography. It's about how important it is to deliver on a brief. Mm. I've been involved with a lot of photography competitions and yep. where there's a brief set and you get some incredible images, but they just miss the brief by so far that they just discount it. For sure. And people, you know, that's the, sometimes people struggle with that. It's, beautiful, it's a beautiful image, there's no doubt about it, but it's not what we are. It's for. not relevant, yeah. So that's, like I said, a really important part of being successful. For sure. Is, is doing that. So you, you've... Um, got through that process and yep. you, now you've got the job. So what did the job actually entail on a day-to-day basis? Day-to-day, uh, I was uh, based in Brisbane in um, a high-rise building uh, looking after the the darkroom and the photo library. I had a photographer um, t- who was my senior. Yep. Um, so I was, I was second photographer in the unit. And we were basically just supplying f- photographic services to, within the... Um, all the needs of the great of the um, National Park Service. So it was scientists who needed to. Um, we either took photos for them or helped them with their photography, uh, the education program, management plans for national parks, proposals for new national parks, uh, and basically, basically we had a um, a room full of slide uh, of filing cabinets full of slides, yes. um, which was the nature of Queensland. And so the the main brief was. You know, the photographic unit was going to create a hist- uh, a record of the nature of Queensland. So, yeah. so it was it was very exciting. Um, I got to see the whole state in various ways. You know, we'd always try and if there was a job that had to be done for a like a PR reason, we'd always try and attach a few days of of um, uh, shooting in the field around that as well. Um, as well. So 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 basically, you, you it was a good opportunity. You got to see Queensland. <laughs> And it's and the nature of Queensland a couple of times each place a couple of times so it was it was pretty <laughs> and, good and probably access into areas that people wouldn't normally maybe get access into I imagine yeah the mo- one of the most exciting times I was there uh, eight years between nineteen eighty six and nineteen ninety four and in the middle of that period was when um, we had a change of government in Queensland and we had the um, Labor Party got in and started expanding the national parks estate so all of the park managers in head office had these you know rafts of files of the places that should be national parks and those proposals were never going through um, under the previous government and the new government came in and, and they were expanded the, the park estate from about one and a half percent of the land area of Queensland to about five percent that's quite a significant increase. and it was done very very quickly and so I found myself out on the um, especially out west on these big properties that were going to be national parks. So yep. Dinover Downs, Karawinya, amazing places, very isolated. Um, but, yeah, I was in there before they were parks, just creating the – helping create the documents that would, would go to the advocacy process for yep. making those parks. So did you say that was about eight years you were doing that roughly? Mm. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. what was the, the, the transitional point after that? Where did you next kind of, you know, your photographic journey, where did it – go from that point um yeah so from there i i actually I, in 1993 so the year before i finished work there i did a um around the world uh trip i did a three-month trip based on some um uh some leave that i had accrued by doing a lot of field work and and so forth and uh so it was my first overseas trip i was what was i i was about 27, something like that. I'd yep. never been out of the country. Yeah. And uh, first stop was Alaska and uh, went to photograph bears in Alaska, <laughs> as you do. <laughs> um, and uh, went from there to Africa. And um, I guess that opened up my eyes to the whole world and a desire to kind of get out beyond the, the boundaries of the state. Yeah. And and, and that's a huge contrast from what you'd been photographing. <laughs> for sure, for sure. You know, I, I was 
fortunate, you know, we've got some amazing rainforests and the Great Barrier Reef was, was um, a big part of my work when I was at National Parks. But yeah, just, I guess, being able to do new things all the time was going to need a bigger, bigger area than just Queensland. So. Yeah, exactly. So you did that kind of three-month sabbatical, travelling the world, and that just obviously fueled your passion, your love for, yep. for that. Yep, I came back and said to my wife, it's time to for me to move on. Um, so uh, while on the travels, I'd seen people selling photographs around the world, and yep. that's something I hadn't really seen in Australia before. Yep. And so I sort of modelled myself on a couple of things that I'd seen. I got a stall at the Riverside Markets on a Sunday okay. and started selling my photos. Um, the, the lady who ran the markets, uh, when I first approached her, she said, oh, no, we only do arts and crafts here. We don't do photography. <laughs> I said, oh, um, photography is an art. And she said, no, it's not. <laughs> and uh, so I convinced her that because I was making the prints myself and um, cutting all the mats and yes. assembling and everything that, you know, I was putting my heart it was, and soul it was in. All hand, it was all, all handmade. All, hand, all hand done. And uh, so she said, oh, you can have a go, but it, you won't last. Anyway, um, I was there for like over a decade and <laughs> it the, the the business based on the markets, which was I expanded from Riverside to Riverside and South Bank and one market down the yes. Gold Coast and uh, started wholesaling matted prints. Um, it was you know, selling, actually physically selling prints, um, paid off our house and raised our two children. So. Yeah, and which which is interesting because that's a much harder gig now because there's so much, it's changed. And yeah. So you were probably at that golden time to actually do something like that. Yeah, I think so, yes. It's yeah. kind of a, I don't know if you've heard of a, tog- a photographer, Eugene Tan. Yes, so, yeah, I know Eugene. Yeah. So Eugene, his story is similar that with... Um, how he got into photography and started selling prints and he didn't really have a plan but fortunately all yeah yeah <laughs> all fell into place yeah eugene um with that great location at bondi um and his you know he was one of the first people to get into sort of social media really yes, with, with his, his email his email, email list every list. morning i had a few friends that that used to receive that and yep. uh yeah he's he's done really well yeah um but it they are I think it's it's a yeah harder gig now much um, harder to much. get into for sure yeah and even even you know I was what well, I I would say I was quite successful at it um, but I saw print sales drop yes for sure and in the way that we were doing them anyway so it's interesting too that that first interaction you had at the markets how the and it's always been you know is photography art it's a, it's been a it's been a debated subject for for decades for sure what's your personal feeling on it uh my personal feeling is that photography is many things and <laughs> some of it's art and some of it's not um some of it's you know really important documentary yes record some of it's not because um, the argument i've heard is that, so someone who gets a speeding ticket for red light camera is that photograph art well <laughs> it it could be you could consider it as art if you put a a spin on it yeah because <laughs> art's all about story isn't it it goes it is. with it yeah <laughs> but um yeah uh is it art yes it, it can be art there's certainly some photography that has entered the art world yep some of it is quasi art it's really just decor with a bit of a spin put on it yep um and then there's there's the the documentary photography which is you know, really important for social, um, but social needs and and the future and and looking back on on history and and telling really important stories. Because it's interesting because some of your wild shots, I look at them and that, to me they they present as art, even though it's kind of it is documenting that that what you've seen. But I think underwater, when you capture something underwater, this is something I don't know. What, I can't put a the finger on what it is, there's just something about it that makes it so much more powerful. Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing. You know, when I started doing underwater photography, um, oh, well, when I first started doing nature photography, it was kind of a specialty. And a nature photographer did macro, landscape, yep. wildlife, underwater. You had to kind of do a bit of everything. As photography's become relatively easier, the thing, the easiest things have kind of dropped off my radar as time's gone on. 
and I've ended up in underwater photography, which for me is still a challenge, whereas some of the other things are, are less challenging. Um, easier to get a result, but less challenging to do. Yes. And, yeah, I, I guess underwater's got the ad- advantage that not, not everybody goes there, so so it is it is new. So it is, niche, it, niche. It, it is a niche market, yes. And I, yeah. and I think, and, and to be good at it, you do have to have a particular skill set because I don't think everyone can dive in the water and with a, a, a housing and, and get amazing pictures. I, I once I had a photographer on this podcast early who who actually talked about you and your underwater photography. He said you could give Darren Jew an iPhone and a Ziploc bag and he'd take the most amazing <laughs> pictures underwater. <laughs> yeah, well, it, I think you know I've I run a few underwater photography courses just you know, from time to time. And one of the first things I always talk about is what you need to be at, to, to be an underwater photographer. And one of those first things is you need to be comfortable in the water. Yes. And so that takes out a whole bunch of people yes. who even if they would desire to do it are going to struggle. And so being at, as, at home in the water is probably the most important thing. And then uh, depending upon the subject matter that you're shooting, certainly having an understanding of how to get those pictures by not interfering and not interrupting the animal's behavior yeah. is is i guess the most critical thing because underwater we 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 have to get very close to things it's you know we can i can do wildlife photography on on land and and i would be always looking for my 300 400 600 mil lens, lens yes um underwater i'm looking for my 16 mil lens or my yeah. 8 to 15 yes. um which puts me in a whole new realm of proximity just so we can see the things yes. um and so you do have to uh what do i i, I often say to to people who so I, I do these whale swimming trips in in tonga and we get lots of photographers who who like the idea of taking whale pictures may not have done a lot of underwater they get some kit and they come along yep. and um, they're used to taking pictures. So, you know, finding a subject and, and taking the picture, we, we, I kind of try and explain it that we've really got to let the whales give us the picture. Yes. So we, it's a completely new way of, of shooting because I, I often am in a situation where I think, oh, geez, I'd like to be over there on the left, but I know that if I move... I'm just going to disturb something. You're going to you're going to have an influence because I suppose is it more or less like when you're in the water there you have to be virtually invisible so you have to be so comfortable with your surroundings that you just you can just blend in so you can be that fly on the wall watching what's going on without changing the the behavior. Yeah, so I I find that I really want the animals to know that I'm there and behave in a way that they don't feel like I'm a threat. Yes, because if they're comfortable with you, then you can move slowly around and, and get in the best pos- position yep. or you establish what is the best position for that animal and, and um, go about your business of taking pictures. It's when you try and project your needs onto the situation that it all kind of falls apart. So. Yeah, because I think one of the things, obviously, animals in the wild in the ocean are already in there with a lot of other animals. So it's not like you're not completely foreign body to that point that there is a lot of other creatures living there for sure and 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 they for the main part are just kind of go about their each other's business and yeah so if you yeah that's that's a great example because if you can if you can get the animals to feel like you're part of the water and you're just going about your business as well then then uh, you'll be much more successful for sure yep so in those instances, you're, you're um, diving with obviously housings and lights and that type of stuff. What would, you, what would you be jumping in the water with normally? What type of stuff would you be? So it uh, depends on subject matter, I guess. Um, I'm actually a big fan of, for my personal work, um, available light photography yep. in, under the water because, I don't know, I just love the way the light falls on things. and. Yes. To me, that's the way to give the best representation of what I've seen. Yes. And the beauty of digital is being able to, you know, alter our contrast and white balance and stuff to yes. be able to create images that are... And filter out some of those wavelengths to, yep. get, to actually get a bit yep. more clarity. Yep. So in that case, I'd be getting... If I'm shooting available light, it's, it's simply a, a DSLR with wide lenses so I can get 
close to things, put uh, uh, sort of the least amount of water between me and the subject as yes. possible. Yep. Because so that because that, that does affect the clarity of the image as well. That's right. The more water you've got, the blurrier things are. Yeah. Lower the contrast. Trying to pull those pull the focus and that type of stuff yep. as well. So yeah, so um, a wide lens, something like an eight to fifteen fisheye or a sixteen to thirty-five um, rectilinear wide, a nice big um, domed glass port in, on front to keep the optics as good as possible. Possible, yeah. You're always going to lose a bit of quality when you're shooting, even with really good glass shooting um, through a, a dome, but uh, there's some reasonable ones around. Yes. Um, and then on t- if, I wanted, if I need to go to lights uh, for whatever reason, um, we don't use any lights with the, the whales. It's actually the laws in Tonga where I do most of the whale swimming stuff is... Um, it prohibits the use of lights with well, it's, gonna, it's obviously going to have a, an indirect impact on mm. how they're going to behave. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but if I'm just doing you know coral reef stuff, I'll use uh, flash mostly. Yep. A couple of a couple of lights and try and balance the the available light and the the flash. And I can just put a little bit of flash in. And when I look at the raw file, sometimes um, I've put in so little flash that you can't actually see any difference. In the colour until yep. you white balance it. Yes. Yep. Um, and that you know it's it's just putting enough red light in there to because be that's to, one of the problems of underwater photography. You you've got this you know filtering effect of the, the water. Yes. So as as you get as the light travels through water, the further it travels through the water, the less red uh, is um, available to you. Yep. And so there's not really, like a lot of people who get getting started say, oh, what filter do you use to do underwater photography? Well, you can use a filter. You still have to white balance on top of that because a, a filter is only going to be good for kind of one depth. One or, wavelength, yeah. Or one colour of water. Yep. Yeah. So. so with that, you know, the Tonga stuff and obviously using natural light, I suppose is a challenge some days if the water um, clarity is not there, Obviously, it makes it quite challenging to actually get in the water and shoot. Or sure, it's uh, everything for the really good pictures. Everything has come together. You've yes. got um, uh, good water clarity, good whales, and you've been able to get in the right position. Um, but often, you know, water clarity is is if it's really clear, then you've got a lot more options. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I I I push my files a long way um, with with contrast and in order to bring bring out the subjects in the way that I do. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So I know talking to a lot of sports photographers who are really good at capturing amazing sports um, is is they learn to read the play. They learn to read what's going on. Would it be fair to say that you've been able to, the amount of time you've spent in the water now, be able to read what's going to happen and how it's going to play out? Or? Well, for sure. I've got a good idea. Um, every, you know, nothing's... Uh, there's always the unexpected and unpredictable, but generally speaking, I know that if the, if I behave in a certain way, we should be able to get the sort of outcome that I want. And being able to, the most important thing with the whales is the, their personal space. Each yep. one's got a different amount of personal space, and that can be different on every day. You could swim with a whale one day, and it's got a certain personal space, and the next day it needs a little bit more. Yeah, we all um, have bad days, Darren, don't we? We do, we do, <laughs> and so uh, that's our approach. We we would normally be getting in the water, and I would just move towards the whale and get yep. as close, get to the point where the whale acknowledges my presence. Yes, and then it's a matter of waiting, and then just working in closer, if possible. Yep. Um, without disturbing them. So, so it's funny because we're currently living in a time where social distancing is a is a big thing. So obviously nature's already had to kind of work something of that out. <laughs> I think it has, yes. <laughs> so, so you went from doing the print sales, right, and then obviously what was the transition point from the print to where did you go to? Is that where you're kind of the space you're currently working in? Uh, so... Uh, when I, I left National Parks and decided to to work for myself, I'd modelled myself on some American photographers who I saw were doing print sales, stock picture sta- yep. sales, some education, running some tours, and so I had a and doing some publishing. And so I had a kind of a suite of things that I would do. And print sales was one uh, commissioned work. Um, there was 
a fair bit of that around. Uh, I got into publishing and making. Um, I had a quite a good little business running, um, making postcards and greeting cards for the zoo and aquarium okay. industry. Yes, sir. and we would just work with a particular uh, attraction. Yes, and and supply them all of their cards. Um, we'd warehouse them for them, and um, I I kind of picked up a few skills in publishing from working at national parks in the yes. publishing area, and so. I, that was a good little business. Um, I started running um, educational uh, workshops um, and weekends away, and then that turned into some tours. Yes. Um, so, I, the first, I actually started running some, uh, doing some education while I was still working at national parks. And that that first trip I did to Africa, on my on my round the world sabbatical. Yep. Um, I had a, a group meet me in Africa oh, okay. and we I did my first overseas photo tour then in, that was 1993, so yep. um, we did a, a week in or 10 days in, in Kenya. Yep. So basically subsequent to, to that, I've always just done whatever it is that I've needed to do to, to make a living at different times over that period, the different aspects of my There'd business. there be different ratios in that, in that yeah. mix. Yeah, stock used to be very important yes. to me and now it's not. Yes. Um, print sales used to be really important and it's less important now. The tours and educational stuff is more important now. So yeah. it's all a matter of kind of being flexible and um, adapting to the, the times. And, and particularly in the current times, being adaptable in businesses is so incredibly important yeah. for businesses to be able to adapt to what's happening around them because you know, things change can ch- as we've you know, experienced. Yes. Things can change in a very short time. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's, you know, I've, I've been thinking about a few things that I'll need to do in order to, to get us through the next little while. You know, our, our tour business has had an effect on, yes. on it, obviously. A bit of a hold put on everything. Yep. Uh, while we see what happens. Customers have all been really good about that so far, um, understanding of the situation. The one thing I suppose about this this crisis that we're currently going through, we are all equally invested in this crisis. Yes, we are, no matter where we are. doesn't matter where you are. Yep. Everyone everyone is, is somehow impacted yep. by it. Unlike when we've had the local bushfires and floods and you know, uh, communities affected. Yeah. But the broader communities, they can't. Yeah. So that's why I think it's made it such a different. It's just it is so different at the moment. For sure. How it's actually going that way. Yeah. So over the time you've um, you've had some um, stuff where you've had some brand associations. I know you've yeah. done some stuff with Canon, and yeah. you just tell us a little bit about your time about what the some of the stuff you've done in that that space. Uh, so I started using uh, Canon cameras in about. Would have been 1986 or 1987, and particularly the long lenses were of interest to me back then. Yes, and I've just had no had no reason to to change brands over the years. And in mid, about 2007, uh, Canon approached me to start uh, to do a couple of things with them. Uh, I did some a speaking engagement and ran a workshop. Did a product launch on a big. Um, Print, book printing system that they have. Yep. Produced the first book in the whole world on this on this printer. Yes. And after that, they uh, approached me about being part of their Canon Masters program, which was like an ambassador program. Yes. And so I joined uh, another ten Australian and New Zealand photographers as who were all in different genres of photography, who were seen as the the kind of leading lights, I guess, in in their in, in their, their fields. In their fields, yeah. yeah, yeah. So how how was how was that experience? Was that a, a really positive experience for you? Or? Uh, for sure, it was. Um, you know, the, the beauty of that arrangement was that you know, I guess people look at it from the outside and go, "Oh, well, you're going to have all of this gear and you're going to do all of this," but it was actually more about they were acknowledging the fact that. Or they wanted wanted me to acknowledge the fact that I would just use whatever gear I wanted, and it happened to be Canon. Yeah. So they didn't push gear on us at all, um, and didn't ask us to do anything in particular yep. about equipment. Not not review things that we, you know, f- for that wasn't part of our job. It was just to shoot good pictures with their cameras. Yes, yeah. and 
I guess they approached me after I'd been shooting with their gear for like 20 years. And so it was really a synergy because it didn't really change my relationship with cameras. Yes. Um, I, I just continued to do the same thing. Yes. But I got opportunities to, to do some um, really incredible things that were really good for my, my career. I guess most notably the helped initiate that Tales by Light series. And, and that's, what I, that's what I was going to lead to next. <laughs> good segue. Um, because obviously that was, um, I mean, you've had a few milestones in your career and that's obviously one of the milestones as well with National Geo. Um, and you want to just explain a little bit about that, how you were involved with that? For sure. Uh, it it came about after Abraham Joff, who, who produced the, the series. Abraham was set the task of making a short video on each of the new Canon Masters. And I got chatting to him um, about doing the one on me in Tonga and doing with the whales. So that's what we went set about doing. And we created this short seven-minute um, biopic, basically, on, yeah. on how I go about shooting whales in Tonga, which was a, a Canon Masters promotion. Uh, long story short, that got that idea and that quality of that content was picked up by some TV execs who said you guys should could make a TV series based on this sort of stuff. Yep. And Canon went, okay, if the TV execs thinks that that's a good idea, we'll do that. And um, so Abraham was tasked with with creating Tales by Light, and he rang me up and said, hey, we've got to do this TV series. Um, we're going to start with you. Yep. And so we based it around the experience we'd had with Tonga, um, yep. and then. He said, what else, what else would you want to take pictures of? And I thought, well, given the state of the world of photography now, it can't be just, I just can't go out and take pictures and, and, uh, and expect people to stay interested. Um, so I came up with the idea of doing something really challenging, um, which was the light painting, the plane wreck up in yep. New Guinea. And, and I guess that's, for me, that's what that series the potential for that series was to be was to show how if you apply yourself with yep. your photography you can do amazing things yep because yeah. just explain that process because did you mount the camera in, a, in a, like a locked off position to shoot that so the camera was static for that shoot yeah so the camera was on a tripod on the bottom yeah um, lots of about 30 kilos of weights on to it anchor it down anchor it down um composed it in the daytime and focused it yep. um, on the on the subject, which was a, a World War II um, Japanese biplane that was sitting on the, the bottom of the ocean at about 30 metres, lined it all up and then came back that night and shot basically five-minute exposures, yep. opened the camera, swam around the, the wreck with a torch and painted, painted the detail in and then came back and assessed assessed the first frame and went oops i i left some gauges hanging out of my my kit and there's some stripes through that <laughs> <laughs> lit up stripes swimming through the frame so i had to kind of quickly adapt um yep. the processes and uh yeah by the i got i had about 20 minutes on that because it was the third dive of the day and that's what i was going to say so the other challenges were obviously i mean our time you could stay in the water yeah yeah um because the when you're scuba diving it's um the nitrogen builds up in your bloodstream uh, and it's kind of cumulative so you can really only do three three dives a day and each one gets a little bit shorter yes and so by the time we we did the exposures because we had to find the wreck on the first dive set up the composition and stuff on the second yeah and and then shoot on the third on the third and uh so yeah i had i got three exposures in in that dive yeah um, and the last one worked, which is good. Which yeah. is good. It's always, it's always good. Um, when, when um, sometimes like, yeah, you, when there's a lot of planning goes into to shooting that, because obviously that, there was a lot of setup. Yes, for sure. To get to that point. And you quite often hear, um, there's another Canon master um, who shoots fashion, um, George. George, yep. I don't know if you've heard the story of the iconic shot he took on the, on the harbour bridge with the girl in the wedding gown. No, I've not heard that. They'd hired a helicopter, they'd hired all this equipment, they'd do all this stuff anyway. Anyway, so he was putting off, putting off. Anyway, as it turned out, he only got one frame mm-hmm. that actually worked. Mm-hmm. And it worked. Like he was lucky. Like every everything, nothing else worked, but there was one frame and it was it was the, the hero shot. Amazing. So sometimes you just have to have that, 
just get that one shot. For sure. Well, you know, that's if that's what they only need one, as long as you've got one. <laughs> I mean, often often that's been the, the thing with digital is you can shoot so much. I mean, coming from shooting film, where people, I cut my teeth on, I need to be bracket shooting stuff and looking at, okay, well, if I don't get it on that, I'll have it here yep. um, type of thing. Is digital's made it so much easier because we can basically interrogate the camera straight away to see what we've got for sure and make adjustments on the fly but yeah i did a uh, a two-week bushwalk in the kimberleys uh with film uh with a view camera so um five four sheets of film yep and i had uh, for two weeks i had a 20 double darks which is 40 frames for the whole time so that it that slows you down and i'd be set up on shots and waiting for the light waiting for the light and if it didn't didn't Come, I didn't, I just you didn't, didn't press shoot, the shutter. Not at all, because yeah. it was was one less chance I'd have. Well, it's a bit like you you had the precursor that when you were given that role of 36. Yeah. When you were auditioning for the Parks and Wildlife thing. So, for sure. You know, that's that's the thing that people, those photographers used to do. In Brisbane, I think it was in the early 90s, uh, there was a couple of 24-hour photo marathon challenges run. I think they ran for about three years. Mm-hmm. And at the start of the marathon, you were given a roll of 24 exposures mm-hmm. and you were giving, given six briefs. Yep. So that was one one frame per brief. Yep. It was a very honest way of shooting because um, a lot of people and a lot of professional photographers got into it, but they were so used to shooting bracketed shots and just knowing there was one in there yep. that you only had one shot at this thing, so you had to get it on that frame. For sure. That's... A lot of pressure sometimes. Yeah. There's a funny story, actually. That roll of film that I shot for National Parks, uh, I got halfway through that roll and the camera that I was using stopped working and I had to take the film out and put it in another camera. And that's quite a tricky process. Yep. In the and, dark room doing it completely in the dark. And remembering how many <laughs> frames that you're up to and all that. And as it turns out, I went back. When I went back and they sort of offered me the job and they said, they said, we're really impressed with my my roll of film, especially that shot in the middle, which was the double exposure. The overlap. Because <laughs> I, I had lined up a double exposure exactly and one shot was eucalyptus trees yep. and the other shot was a sunset. Yes. <laughs> but I hadn't meant to do that. <laughs> they were supposed to be two different pictures. Because <laughs> we, we used to do that um, with film because you you trick the camera by pressing and recocking the shutter without actually... Transferring the film, yeah, or, or you'd, you'd, um, yes, that's right for doing your double exposures, yeah, for sure, yeah, yeah. So that was funny, yeah, very lucky. That was so obviously the universe was looking after you. That was it was yeah. meant to happen for sure. So, yeah. so where where do you see your photography going into the future? Is is there something that you haven't yet done that you want to kind of shoot or? Well, I've been lucky enough to. To see a lot of really amazing things. So your bucket, you've ticked a lot of stuff off the bucket list. I, I have. Um, you know, the bucket list. Since the bucket list has become a bit of a thing, it's become less of a thing for me. Yep. Um, and I valued the things that I've seen already. Yep. Because sometimes yeah. bucket list items can be disappointing because you can have this hype that you've built around shooting a particular place, and then when you do get there it doesn't live up to your expectations and you can feel a little bit deflated. And also if it is if it is a list and, and you're going there to photograph, to get that picture, at the end of that, it's kind of all over. Yes. Um, I, I, the thing that I get the most out of is going back to the same place and shooting the same things, trying to do it differently. Yes. Because that challenges my photography more because it's, it's easy for me to get a new and exciting picture for myself if I go somewhere new. Yes. Because the subject's new. It's all new. That's it's all right. new. Um, whereas if I go back to the same place and it, it's it's a much bigger task to try and do something that I haven't done before. Yeah. So there's like the whales, like I've been photographing grey and white whales in blue water yes. every year since, not, since 2001. And so every time I go there, I go, okay, what am I going to do differently this time? So I have to ask this question because there is a urban myth that um, you have the frame of the most whales ever captured. Is that is that true or false? <laughs> uh, Got to love the media. So I um I I did some work with a Japanese freediver who was a world record holding freediver. Yep, she she'd done 
um, she had a couple of world records for, for her breath hold ability. And around the same time, I got a picture of um, her with some whales. Yes. About 10 or 12, which was amazing. Yes. Uh, and I had another picture with about 18 whales in it, which was a lot of whales. Yes. Anyway, I sent off pictures in a picture package to an agent with captions and everything. And one of the captions was world record holding freediver yes. with humpback whales in Tonga. Yes. And another one was, you know, 18 whales in one picture. Yes. Blah, blah, blah. But media being what it is, the, f- the main headline came out was world record number of whales in one picture. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it reminded me why I hadn't done a lot of work with the press um, <laughs> over the years. Um, there is a lot of pictures, in a lot of whales in that picture. Eight, 18, at that stage, that was a few years ago now, 18 was the most, I think I've got one with 21 in it now. But I've never, I've never personally claimed, claimed it. that it was a, world, a Guinness World Record. Record, <laughs> <laughs> but it was a lot of whales. It yeah. is. Well, yeah. it's it's still good. It's I think it's 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 a nice um, you know thing to have out there still. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah, it comes up every so often. <laughs> so, having obviously your experiences that you've had, um, if you could collaborate with any photographer, alive or or, or, or dead or past. Is there someone that you would love to work with? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I, I would love to spend a few weeks in Ansel Adams' darkroom. Yep. As I'm sure. I think a lot of people. M- most would. of them. And, you know, it, by, even by just mentioning his name, I go, oh, well, that's a bit of a, like, a given. Yes. But for me, the reason that I, I like his work is not his results necessarily, but his command of the process. Yes. And, you know, I, when I was shooting black and white landscape, I, I went through the whole process and I read his camera, his, his camera negative and print books. Yes. And made my step wedge for the inside of my camera bag by photographing a towel at various exposures and then printing them. Yep. And had my spot meter and... It was amazing to be able to be in such control of an analog process. So it was that command of process, which is the thing that I, I really you appreciate, appreciate that, about uh, him. Yeah. I love his work as well. Yes, but um, the fact that he took the, took it to another level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and was used the tools at his disposal to to make the best pictures that he could. Yes, and and I guess. I've tried to emulate that with the way that I work under the water. Yes. I've I've got raw files now that I can alter the contrast and colour on to get what the the story that I want to tell. How, how do you how do you think Ansel Adams would you you know could bring him back to life and hand him a you know a digital camera? How do you think he would see see that? Well, he I reckon he would absolutely love it because he that idea that as long as you've got all the information in the right place in the capture, then yep. it's up to you to interpret that in the print. Um, and that's exactly what we do. We, ne- we do now. Basically, we have the ability to, to have as much information uh, from sh- highlights to shadows as, as we can, whether it's in one capture or two, if it's a static subject. And, um, and look, I must admit, that's the thing that I personally love about digital is that I'll, I'll tend to shoot a little bit underexposed. Because once highlights blow out, you, they're gone. There's nothing you can do there. Mm. There's just a bunch of white pixels there and you can't ever come back from that. Yep. But I'm always amazed, and, and particularly with the modern DSI cameras, how much you can pull out of the shadows, how much detail is actually there. It's For amazing. Sure. Yeah. It does. Yeah. It blows you away sometimes because I'll take a shot and go, no, I went a little bit too far. Yep. I'm yep. Not, and then I'm actually surprised. It's actually still a usable picture. I can still get the information out yeah. of it. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I guess that... That then gives us the opportunity to take pictures of things that we wouldn't have otherwise taken pictures of before. And I think that's the exciting thing about technology moving forward. And we are seeing, I mean, it has the technology has slowed down a bit yep. in, in cameras because, um, you know, we've had, we had the big transition from analog to digital. And then, you know, the first digital cameras, you know, let's face it, they weren't that great, but they soon found their balance and they got, got their feet kind of going and they became 
that you d- indispersable you had to you had to use it for sure um sure. and i'm just wondering where the next crop of cameras is going to take us yeah we've we see we have cameras with lots of resolution and we have cameras with lots of dynamic range it's really up to us to to make the most of them now i think there is a bit of an adage where of uh like the idea that these modern sort of full foolproof cameras almost that the cameras are almost killing photography in a way well in, um, in a way i think because the thing is i've got this theory too that with modern cameras every everybody has the ability to take that one special image now you know when everything just aligns everything happens they mightn't be they mightn't understand what they're taking mm-hmm. but the camera allows them to capture that moment and, sure. it, and it becomes something super special so yeah yeah but it's the the trouble is being able to repeat that. Mm, mm. <laughs> yeah, for sure, and being able to produce good pictures of things that aren't spectacular in front of you. Yes, as well. Um, and the camera's n- not necessarily going to help you in those those situations. So, Darren, where where would people be able to find some examples of your work? Where are the best places for people to look on social media and that type of stuff? What's the uh, well, yeah, my Instagram account is uh, where most of my contemporary work goes yes well not most of my but some of my contemporary work goes that's the that's probably the best starting point that's Um, just darren jew yep easy as that yeah for sure and then my website has become less important as instagram and other mediums social media become more yep more important but um it's just getting a bit of a revamp at the moment so yes and i think with this is the ideal time for, for photographers to take this opportunity of this time of of downtime to be able to get those things in order where you're probably you know when you're really busy you you just go i'm going to get to that but you never do so use that use our time wisely now that we've got we've been kind of forced to forced to be in front of the computer computer and and doing those things yeah and have that little bit extra time so what's the website it's the uh darrenjew.com darrenjew.com yeah yeah Look, Darren, thank you for coming in and just sharing some of your photography journey. Um, it's fantastic to obviously to to better hear the pathway, how you've got to um, where you are today and, and all those little bits and pieces along the way. So thank you for, oh, again. Thanks for having me. Thank no you. Worries. Thank Bye. You. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Photo Mission Exposure. If you liked the episode, please leave a comment. Also, you can follow us. Don't forget to tune into another episode soon. Thank you.